BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. I want to bring in Peter Dow. He's the Democratic digital media strategist, author of the new book, Digital Civil War, Confronting the Far-Right Menaces website, Peter Dow, D-A-O-U dot com. And you can tweet him, of course, at Peter Dow, D-A-O-U. Peter, welcome to the program. Nice to be on. Thanks, Tom. You and I were on opposite sides of the Bernie-Hillary wars during the last primary, and you were basically calling for peace. And I've been doing the same. I'm not endorsing anybody specifically going into the primary. I think we've got a lot of really great candidates. Occasionally, I get people calling into the program who try to revive the Bernie-Hillary wars on this show, and I basically hang up on them. I think all of us need to be working together on this. I'd like you to riff about that real briefly, and then we'll get to your book. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I've been doing this for a long time, and I I remember all the great work you've done over the years as well. So 2016, really, I see it as essentially one of those family disputes that just goes wrong. The temperature gets so heated. We were not prepared for what happened in 2016. And I don't want to dismiss a lot of the pain and frustration and hurt that took place. People can't erase that, and I don't want to erase that. What I'm saying is let's hit the pause button, because what we're facing in the next couple of years, is essentially a far-right takeover of our country in a way where we may not be able to come back and get it back ever again. So, you know, we're facing an unprecedented threat, and my attitude right now is we all have to work together. So it's critically important. And, and, And same as you, I haven't endorsed anyone but I've advocated for, and I, you know, I was a major critic of Bernie Sanders and a huge supporter of Hillary Clinton, as everybody knows, in 2016. But this is 2019 going into 2020. And we have a threat that is unprecedented, certainly in our lifetimes. Yeah. Amen. Oh, which, which speaks to your book, Digital Civil War, Confronting the Far-Right Menace. And, and I think that this is one of the most consequential forms of damage that this president has done to our country is basically destroying the the notion of checks and balances in our government, the the notion of civility in politics. You know, he has elevated the the, the politics of grievance and hate. I think he's following a trajectory that was pioneered by Rupert Murdoch, uh, first in Australia, then in the UK, and now here in the United States with Fox News. Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, has written about this. He wrote a piece uh, recently for the City Morning Herald called is saying that Murdoch is the cancer on Australian democracy. He owns more than half the newspapers in Australia right now. 
But that's just like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's this giant, you know, the thing that grew out of essentially the, the Powell memo back in 71. Why did you choose the title Digital Civil War? And what specifically are you addressing in this book? You raised a crucial point that I want to come to in, in terms of uh, Murdoch and Fox, et cetera. Look, I grew up, I'm an American, but I grew up in Beirut, Lebanon during the Civil War there. So I spent 10 years of my life in an actual Civil War, hiding in bomb shelters, dealing with what you see in Iraq and Syria today. That was my childhood. So I grew up wow. in the Civil War, and I understand that there's a component of internal war and strife in general that I think a lot of people in the U.S. who have not experienced it should know more about it. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I feel that we've reached a point in this country where when you see some of the debates, it's clear we've moved past the point of actually trying to use logic to convince people of positions. And now it's essentially we're at odds in such a way that it essentially is a civil war. And then all these terms go around uncivil war, cold civil war, soft civil war. There are a lot of different terms people use. And when I thought about it, I thought this fight is being fought predominantly online, which is why you'd see the Russian infiltration was a digital, was a cyber attack, essentially. Yeah. You see Trump, you know, Twitter is his main form of getting his message out there. So we're in a battle. To me, it's a fight to the political death, essentially, that the far right, the right wing extremist Republican Party wants to destroy blue America and everything it stands for and, and, and instate one party rule, authoritarian rule. This is what they're aiming for. They're stacking the judiciary. It's, it's, a, it's a long-term plan. So for me, this is really a fight, and we have to look at it as a fight for our political lives, for everything that this country stands for. Now, you raised Murdoch and Fox. Part of the book, part of Digital Civil War is after 20 years, this is my first book. I've waited to write it because I wanted to get the information and really try to understand what's happening. The right-wing information system, it's really a right-wing attack or propaganda system with Fox, Sinclair, now YouTube, Facebook, blogs, websites, etc. Right-wing hate radio. Yeah, hey, radio, absolutely, radio as well. So if you look at this messaging infrastructure that they have, there is nothing like it on our side. You do great work. There are great people doing radio, podcasts, etc. on the progressive side, but nothing like the oligarch-funded think tanks and communication system that has been developed over 40, 50 years. And if you take a look at the fights we're having in this civil war, if you, you know, if you look at, you know, 150 years ago, the battlefields were the fields of the South, right? The big fields in which armies, standing armies faced each other. But now we have this massive fight that's happening online. And it's happening on the far right's turf, Tom. This is the thing that's so disturbing to me. If you take a look at abortion, for example, now the talking point is Democrats support murdering babies. Right. And this is happening. This right is what Trump said Saturday night. Exactly. The right. woman gives birth to the baby. They wrap it up. They take a nice care of it. And then the woman sits down with her doctor and decides whether or not to kill the baby. This uh, no. does not happen, has never happened. And it is it's pouring gasoline on this fire of the debate around abortion. Precisely. It's, it's a heinous, hideous lie. But this is the way they message. The entire national debate, and now the national, essentially digital civil war, is being fought on the far right's turf. Look at guns. We're actually debating whether elementary school teachers should go into their classrooms with weapons. Right. It's, it's, it's outlandish. Immigration. We're debating whether we should be stealing babies from parents and caging them in frigid holding cells. Every single issue you look at, abortion as well, the entire conversation is moved by this massive propaganda system to the far right's turf. So even to get to just zero, to square one, 
for Democratic candidates running for 2020. They need to understand and point out how the system is working or we're just spinning our wheels. Look, again, I remember you from way back, Tom. You've been doing this a long time. You've been fighting the fight a long time. And 2016 sort of went off the rails for everybody. But since 2000, 2001, I've been fighting the far right. And at this point, I'm looking at myself and saying, I'm failing because the fringe sort of free republic Breitbart comment sections that were really considered fringe when I was doing this are now running the country. So we have gone backwards. Yes, we've had the Obama victory. We had the midterms. But despite these victories, right now we're far worse off than we were 20 years ago. And I'm asking myself how. So part of writing Digital Civil War is to say, okay, this is what's happening. We need to see it for what it is. So how do we solve this problem, Peter? I mean, we've we've been you know, kind of acknowledging the existence of the hard right for some time. You got Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, the Democracy in Chains, Nancy McLean's book. There's some really great, great stuff out there that just lays all this stuff out, but it just rolls along. I mean, you know, it's a, you got Mitch McConnell stacking the courts right now with literally people who are in their 30s who have never tried a case, and suddenly they have a lifetime federal judgeships. Well, Brett Kavanaugh never tried a case. It's like, this is, this is nuts. What do we do? None of us really have a solution. And again, having lived through a war, I don't want to be a downer, but sometimes the outcome is not what you want it to be. We are fighting for our lives here, but we have to acknowledge that even the best of intentions and the best of fights can sometimes not result in victory. But here's what I think we need to do. The first step is we have to look inside ourselves. The process that I've gone through from 2016 to today with the Bernie Sanders side and Hillary Clinton supporters is to look inside myself and ask myself what role I've played. Have I been constructive? Have I been productive? So that's the first part, to to really just acknowledge the truth of who we are and what we can do. The second step is to see reality for exactly what it is. I think one of the biggest problems is we want to feel that there are saviors. You know, Mueller was going to be the savior, then Nancy Pelosi is going to be the savior, or Chuck Schumer. No one's coming to save us, Tom. This is, this is what we, we need to all see. We need to be our own leaders. We need to step up, find what it is we do best. You know, do you like to canvas? you want a phone bank? you want to organize? you want to blog? you want to do a podcast? You know, go on social media and, and speak up? Every single one of those roles matter. Choose something that you can do best that you want to do and do it to the best of your ability. I take a look at a friend of mine, Shannon Watts, who started Mom's Demand. She started a Facebook page a few years ago to fight gun violence after Sandy Hook. It now has chapters in 50 states. They're making tangible progress on guns. This is just a stay-at-home mom, former communications executive, and look what she's been able to do. Right. We need to be our own leaders. The Democratic Party is not going to save us, and, and it, it's, it's painful to say this, but the impeachment debate is a perfect example. If Donald Trump does not get impeached or deserve impeachment, then nobody does. Yeah. So this is a massive failure on the part of the Democratic establishment. Yeah, I agree. And I think the idea that we need to not only look into ourselves, but also be working to... I wrote a, an op-ed for, I think it was on multiple sites uh, a week or two ago, about how to start a progressive podcast, because I get so many people sending me emails saying, you know, you've been doing this radio show for 15 years. How do you do it? What do I do? How do I get on the air? Well, there's not that many radio stations that will carry progressive programming, but anybody can start a podcast. And so I wrote this piece. We need to figure out ways to empower ourselves and build out our own internal network. Final thoughts on that? Yeah, you're exactly right. I saw your piece and I thought it was very generous of you. That's exactly right, Tom. Every single thing we do that shows that we stand up and step up matters. It makes a difference. Yeah. Peter Dow, his new book is The Digital Civil War. And this is really important. If a Russian had walked into the DNC and stolen something, 
and then taken it and handed it to Donald Trump Jr. They'd both be in jail right now. It would be like, you know, Nixon all over again. But because it was done digitally, we kind of, eh, you know, ignore it or we think of it differently. And we really shouldn't. It's it, Peter, you've written a brilliant book, Confronting the Far Right Menace is the subtitle. It's available, you know, wherever, wherever you find books are available right now. And uh, Peter Dow, D-A-O-U.com is the website. Peter, thank you for dropping by. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Tom, for having me. Great talking with you, and I look forward to future conversations. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading the Mueller report. This is from page four. It's titled Executive Summary to Volume One, Russian Social Media Campaign. The Internet Research Agency carried out the earliest Russian interference operations identified by the investigation, a social media campaign designed to provoke and amplify political and social discord in the United States. The IRA was based in St. Petersburg, Russia, and received funding from Russian oligarch Yevgeny Progishin and companies he controlled. Progishin is widely reported to have ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin, large chunk of unredacted stuff. In mid-2014, the IRA sent employees to the United States on an intelligence-gathering mission with instructions redacted. The IRA later used social media accounts and interest groups to sow discord in the U.S. political system through what it termed, quote, information warfare, end quote. The campaign evolved from a generalized program designed in 2014 and 2015 to undermine the U.S. electoral system to a targeted operation that by early 2016 favored candidate Trump and disparaged candidate Clinton. The IRA's operation also included the purchase of political advertisements on social media in the names of U.S. persons and entities, as well as the staging of political rallies inside the United States. To organize those rallies, IRA employees posed as U.S. grassroots entities and persons and made contact with Trump supporters and Trump campaign officials in the United States. The investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. persons conspired or coordinated with the IRA. Section 2 of this report details the office's investigation of the Russian social media campaign. Russian hacking operations. At the same time that the IRA began to focus on supporting candidate Trump in early 2016, the Russian government employed a second form of interference, cyber intrusions, hacking, and release of hacked materials damaging to the Clinton campaign. The Russian intelligence service, known as the Main Intelligence Directorate of the General Staff of the Russian Army, GRU, carried out these operations. In March 2016, the GRU began hacking the email accounts of Clinton campaign volunteers and employees, including campaign chairman John Podesta. In April 2016, the GRU hacked the computer networks of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, and the Democratic National Committee, the DNC. The GRU stole hundreds of thousands of documents from the compromised email accounts and networks. Around the time that the DNC announced in mid-June 2016 the Russian government's role in hacking its network, the GRU began disseminating stolen materials through fictitious online personas, DC leaks, and Guccifer 2.0. The GRU later released additional materials through the organization WikiLeaks. The presidential campaign of Donald J. Trump, Trump campaign or campaign, showed interest in WikiLeaks releases of documents and welcomed their potential to damage candidate Clinton. Beginning in June 2016, redacted, forecast to senior campaign officials that WikiLeaks would release information damaging to candidate Clinton. WikiLeaks' first release came in July 2016. Around the same time, candidate Trump announced that he hoped Russia would recover emails described as missing from a private server used by Clinton 
when she was Secretary of State, parenthesis. He later said he was speaking sarcastically, close parenthesis, redacted. WikiLeaks began releasing Podesta's stolen emails on October 7, 2016, less than one hour after U.S. media outlet released video considered damaging to candidate Trump. Section 3 of this report details the office's investigation into the Russian hacking operations, as well as other efforts by Trump campaign supporters to obtain Clinton-related emails. Russian contacts with the campaign. The social media campaign and the GRU hacking operations coincided with a series of contacts between Trump campaign officials and individuals with ties to the Russian government. The office investigated whether this is the uh, Mueller's office when he says the office. The office investigated whether those contacts reflected or resulted in the campaign, that's the Trump campaign, conspiring or coordinating with Russia in its election interference activities. Although the investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and worked to secure that outcome, and that the campaign expected that it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. The Russian contacts consisted of business connections, offers of assistance to the campaign, invitations for candidate Trump and Putin to meet in person, invitations for campaign officials and representatives of the Russian government to meet, and policy positions seeking improved U.S.-Russian relations. Section 4 of this report details the contacts between Russia and the Trump campaign during the campaign and transition periods, the most salient of which are summarized below in chronological order. 2015. Some of the earliest contacts were made in connection with the Trump Organization real estate project in Russia known as Trump Tower Moscow. Candidate Trump signed a letter of intent for Trump Tower Moscow by November 2015. And in January 2016, Trump Organization Executive Michael Cohen emailed and spoke about the project with the Office of Russian Government Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov. The Trump Organization pursued the project through at least June 2016, including by considering travel to Russia by Cohen and candidate Trump. It's the Mueller Report. Hey, Tom Harbin here. You know, we've been talking on this program for years now about the benefits of CBD and I just in the last few months discovered New Leaf Naturals CBD oil. It is the premium, organic, highly concentrated, pure CBD oil. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. The brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, is grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's n-u-leafnaturals.com. Save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Brandy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind? Hey, uh, Tom. Yeah, I wanted to comment about something that happened on C-SPAN this morning. Okay. And 
And it has to do with messaging, the Democratic Party messaging for the 2020 election. And that is that this morning I witnessed something. The conversation was set for Medicare for All. And somebody hit a nerve, and it was a Democrat who called in from Austin, a disabled vet. And he was talking about, he didn't label it, but he was talking about when 2001, after the tax cuts, and then George Bush got in and unlocked the lockbox that the Democrats and Bill Clinton had set up on Social Security. And it was actually out. never set up, Randy. It was that, those funds were, they're segregated in as much as there's the trust fund, but they're not segregated in that the trust fund can't be raided. There was a lockbox on Social Security when Bill Clinton went out of office. You sure? It was locked. And, and George Bush had to maneuver around to get those funds out of, uh, of sequester. Okay. But, and that, that, that is, but at any rate, the point is, is that there was a Republican woman from Oklahoma that called in, and it's the same thing. It's that these Republicans, for, and they didn't label tax cuts, say that this was a specific reason, but they were saying that they are spending the money that I put away for my future for tax cuts and for other expenditures, whether it be war or whatever. And this crossed party lines. Mm-hmm. So there is the issue of securing our Social Security retirement funds that we have paid into for all these years, decades. And there's one other issue that is a glaring problem, and that is telemarketing. See, the Democrats had a federal don't call list that actually worked. And two or three weeks ago, I had a phone call telling me, if you want to be protected from telemarketing and uh, uh, calls on your telephone system, uh, register your number. (laughs) And I, I punched my number in, and you know what happened? You started getting more calls, I'm guessing. No, no. Some guy called me the other day and thought I had called him. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah. So, so they stole my number. Yeah. To, yeah. To yeah. It's, it's, nothing, it's nothing but scams all the time. And, th- and this is something that the Commerce Department, you know, there are rules against this. There are laws against this. And the Commerce Department should be enforcing them. But Wilbur Ross is the head of the Commerce Department, and they have no interest in enforcing these laws. Right, right. And, and the Democrats had a better idea and had legislation that's more recent. They had things that worked besides yeah. Obamacare and besides getting rid of Trump. And the Democratic Party is the party of ideas. The Democratic Party is the party yes, of the sir. people. And the Republican yes. Party is the party of the billionaires, the plutocrats, and the haters. It's just that simple. Randy, hey. thank you for the call. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. By the way, I had mentioned earlier what I thought was like the setup question for Bernie at the CNN town hall. And again, keep in mind, these questions were submitted in writing to CNN's producers. They decided which questions would be asked of which candidates. And this was from a woman who was the vice president of the Harvard Undergraduate Centrist Society. In fact, after she asked the question, they tweeted out, our amazing VP asked a great question on CNN's town hall to Senator Bernie Sanders tonight. As centrists, our main priority is having thought-provoking conversations like this to provoke constructive debate and change. We are so proud of you, Samantha. And here she is asking that question. My father's family left Soviet Russia in 1979, fleeing from some of the very same socialist policies that you seem eager to implement in this country. So my question is, how do you rectify your notion of democratic socialism with the failures of socialism in nearly every country that has tried it? 
And she said, I think she might, you know, reconcile, not rectify, but. Thank you for asking that question. Is it your assumption that I supported or believe in authoritarian communism that existed in the Soviet Union? I don't. I never have. And I oppose it. And he continues from there. So, you know, but, you know, <laughs> talk about it. You know, are, are you still are you still torturing small animals? I mean, really? Oh, boy. But, but my point is, you know, is this going to be the Dean scream? Is this going to be the media takedown? of Bernie Sanders. And, and I, I'm saying that not as somebody who has endorsed Bernie. I'm wide open to the entire Democratic field right now. But it concerns me tremendously when a major network holding a major event like that intentionally puts forward that kind of propaganda, for lack of a better word. Laura in Watertown, Wisconsin. Hey, Laura, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Yeah, this fits right in with what you were just talking about. I'm a little disgusted at watching late night talk show hosts lately, uh, specifically the comedians. You know, usually they're poking fun at Trump, but uh, lately it looks like Bernie's been their main target. Mm. I thought at first maybe it was just a fluke thing. My husband and I both were offended because it's not just, you know, comedians being fun, but they're actually, it seems like they're discriminating on his age and just totally making fun of them going out of their way to be mean about Bernie, where I just don't even want to watch these programs anymore. I'm talking about three out of the four that I watch. Yeah. I don't know if I should mention. Well, you're, you're welcome to, Laura. I, you know, I don't um, watch them. Well, Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, and then just caught a little bit of Jimmy Fallon. I don't yeah. usually watch him, but yeah. they're all doing it. But this is uh, what comedians do. I mean, it's fair game for comedy. My question is, are the so-called news networks engaging in this? I mean, at a certain level, this comes with the territory. Bernie has raised more money and has more money in the bank right now than the DNC, the DCCC, the Congressional Campaign Committee, and the DSCC, the Senatorial Campaign Committee, combined. That's how far ahead Bernie is of everybody. I mean, Bernie is way ahead as the front runner. And you would think as the front runner that he'd be getting a lot of time on TV. I mean, he's ahead of where Hillary was, everybody else. But he's not getting that. I, instead, he's getting the we're going to take you down treatment, just like they did with Howard Dean. So, yeah, I think it's unfair. And, you know, in the state of Wisconsin, he won uh, the primary here. Oh, yeah. In Michigan and, and West Virginia of, yeah. and, and 20 other states. And a lot of our younger voters really uh, were stoked up about him. Um, so, you know, them making fun of, poking fun at him for his age, I think he's in pretty good shape. If you ever seen the clip of him running through an airport, yeah. you know, I think he's a lot better shape than the current incumbent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, he's in better shape than, you know, most people who are 10 or 15 years younger than him or even 20 years younger than him. And, you know, and we'll see how this shakes out, Laura. And we'll see also if it's about Bernie or if it's about policy. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, Bernie's got that socialist label that's going to be a challenge for the Democrats if he's the nominee. It's not going to be an insurmountable challenge, but it's going to have to be something that they're going to have to deal with. On the other hand, Elizabeth Warren doesn't have that label, and she's basically espousing the exact same policies. So we'll see. But if they start going after Elizabeth Warren the way that they're going after Bernie right now, that tells me that the media is pursuing not just a let's get Bernie out of the way agenda, but a let's get progressives out of the way agenda. Laura, thank you for the call. Hey, it's Tom Harbin. We're reading from A Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right in today's Tom Harbin University Book Club. This is from Chapter 11, 
page 271. The official opening of the 112th Congress took place on January 5th, 2011, when Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, handed off an oversized ceremonial gavel to her successor, John Boehner. But a new era of ultra-conservative billionaire influence had already begun. Before the public swearing-in ceremony got underway, David Koch, whose donor network had spent at least $130.7 million on winning a Republican majority, was in the new Speaker-to-be's ornate office chatting amiably with his staff. The People's House was under new management, and critics would suggest new ownership. While Koch was a very public presence on the Capitol, his political adjutant, Tim Phillips, the president of Americans for Prosperity, was deep in the inner sanctum of the congressional committee that mattered most to the bottom line of Koch Industries. Phillips' most important destination that day was the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which under the new Republican majority had now increased its power to block President Obama's environmental agenda in Congress. The committee could bury progress on climate change and harass the EPA for the foreseeable future. In Plutocrats, the rise of the new global super-rich and the fall of everyone else, journalist Krista Freeland describes how those with massive financial resources almost universally use them to secure politics and policies beneficial to their interests, often at the expense of the less well-off. In the United States, a number of studies have shown that in recent years, this tendency has distorted politics in very specific ways. In a study he conducted for the nonpartisan Sunlight Foundation, the political scientist Lee Drutman found that increasingly concentrated wealth in America resulted in more polarization and extremism, especially on the right. Very rich benefactors in the Republican Party were far more opposed to taxes and regulations than the rest of the country. He discovered the more Republicans depend upon 1% of the 1% donors, the more conservative they tend to be. The 112th Congress soon unfolded as a case study of what David Frum, an advisor to the former President George W. Bush, described as the growing and, in his view, destructive influence of the Republican Party's radical rich. The radicalization of the party's donor base, he observed, has propelled the party to advocate policies that were more extreme than anything since Barry Goldwater and his 1964 presidential campaign. It also led Republicans in Congress to try tactics they would never have dared use before, end quote. Hard data supported this. Harvard's Theta Scott poll found that the House took the biggest leap to the far right since political scientists began recording quantitative measurements of legislators' positions. There was no better example than the Koch's newly won influence over the House Energy and Commerce Committee. In the previous Congress, the panel had been chaired by Henry Waxman, the liberal Democrat from California, who had quarterbacked the House's successful passage of the cap-and-trade bill, only to see it die in the Senate. Now the new Republican leadership stocked the committee with oil industry advocates, many of whom owed huge campaign debts to the Kochs. Koch Industries PAC was the single largest oil and gas industry donor to members of the panel, outspending even ExxonMobil. It had donated to 22 of the committee's 31 Republican members and five of its Democratic members, too. In addition, five out of the six Republican freshmen on the committee had received outside support from Americans for Prosperity. Meanwhile, many of the new committee members had signed an unusual pledge swearing fealty to the Koch's agenda. They promised to vote against any kind of carbon tax unless it was offset by comparable spending cuts, an unlikely scenario. The no climate tax pledge was invented by Americans for Prosperity in 2008, when the Supreme Court cleared the way for the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases as it does other pollutants. The Koch's pledge was modeled on the enormously successful one that the anti-tax crusader Grover Norquist had used to intimidate Republican lawmakers from raising taxes. In this instance, it served not a cause so much as a company. 
By the start of the legislative session in 2011, fully 156 members of Congress had signed the Koch brothers' No Climate Tax Pledge. Many returning members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee had already taken the pledge, and of the 12 new Republicans on the panel, nine were signatories, including five of the six freshmen. A prime example of the symbiotic relationship between the Kochs and the committee was Morgan Griffith, who had defeated Rick Boucher in the district that represented Saltville, Virginia, and was among the new wave of appointees to the Energy and Commerce Committee who were openly indebted to the Koch brothers for their seats. Americans for Prosperity operatives were guests of honor at a victory rally soon after the election, at which Griffith gushed, quote, I'm just thankful that you all helped me out in so many ways, end quote. The Koch's investments soon paid off. Once in office, Griffith became an outspoken skeptic of mainstream climate science, drawing national ridicule for lecturing scientific experts as they testified before Congress that they needed to consider the possibility that Mesopotamia and the Vikings owed their success to global warming, and the melting ice caps on Mars showed that humans were not its cause on Earth. Congressman Griffith became a lead player in the House Republicans' war on the EPA, demanding that the agency be reined in. Within a month after he took office, he and other House Republicans gutted the EPA budget by a punishing 27%. Dark money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right, Jane May. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold you're listening to Tom Hartman. Those folks who support our program, who help essentially sponsor us on YouTube and on Patreon, uh, have access to special content that is generally not available on YouTube or in, you know anyplace else. The rant is about how the cell phone companies have been selling your data. And now they swear, double cross your heart and hope to die. Don't worry, we're not going to sell your data anymore. Right. Meanwhile, Gene Shaheen is saying, you know, the drug companies are ripping us off, and at the same time, they're spending, spending billions of dollars on advertising to jack up demand for products that, in many cases, we don't need and are actually harming us. So she's saying, do away with the tax break that they get. Advertising is tax deductible. Do away with that tax deduction. Thank you for supporting Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. So let's check in with Bob Nay with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do. Speaking of books, Bob's is sideswiped, and it's brilliant if you want to know how D.C. really works. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. So what's up in the world? Well, you know, we had the story that we were talking about on your show last time I was on, and it was about the payment to North Korea for Otto Warmbier, mm-hmm. and the president came out and said that that did not happen, and now Joseph Yun, the former State Department special rep for North Korea, confirmed 
today that he did sign an agreement, so he signed it. And he agreed to pay North Korea $2 million for the release of Otto Warmbier, who is, you know, of course, passed away when he returned here. So after he confirmed that, he said that it was done at the request, actually, of Tillerson, the Secretary of State at the time, and he was also told that it was approved by President Trump. So from one story to another, it's sort of a, a play on words, I guess, because, yeah. you know, the Post came out originally and said that the payment was made. The president said, we didn't pay $2 million, but we certainly did sign. So it's like, I mean, we had a contractor on this show last year who worked on the uh, Trump casinos and had helped mm-hmm. build the uh, tables, I guess, that the gambling, you know, for the gambling, fine work, you know, uh, as in fine carpentry, you know, very, 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 and, and, and he billed Trump hundreds of thousands of dollars for this work and Trump stiffed him and dragged it out for like a year and a half and then went into bankruptcy and the guy never got paid, he got screwed. Uh, but Trump mm-hmm. contracted for the work and promised to pay for it. So it seems like with North Korea and Otto Warmbier, Trump is just doing what he did in business for years and years and years. Uh, promising to pay, and then stiffing the guy that he said he was going to pay. Right, because uh, actually uh, our former representative, he's not uh, anymore, to North Korea, uh, he was an American, and he said, you know, obviously, even though uh, nobody really particularly cares for the regime, it was a commitment to pay. Yeah. I thought it was very fascinating because, you know, when the one news media said we paid to get him here, and then the president came out and said, we did not do it. That's not true, meaning fake news. Right. But it's the splitting of hairs in the words. When you yeah. Now we realize, and Bolton confirmed, well, Bolton said, it's clear no money was paid. But Bolton says he doesn't know the circumstances, which obviously is not true. Right. But Kim was paid. And the way he was paid was Trump elevated him from the status of a tin pot, third world, obscure, irrational, bizarre little dictator to being a major international diplomat and head of state on the world stage. And that's a huge payment. That's worth a hell of a lot more than $2 million to North Korea. Now they're being taken seriously. Now Kim can brag to his own people as he's imprisoning them that he has the stamp of approval of the president of the United States. That's a BFD, Bob. That's a payment in indirect way. Yes, yes. What else is going on? Also, the president is coming out. He is hitting the New York attorney general for, quote, illegally investigating the NRA. Now, this is a fascinating story because, you know, the NRA is under siege, just what the president says, by the attorney general. And he said they're illegally, they, New York apparatus, the uh, government structure, is illegally trying to take down and destroy the very important organization and others. And he put this out in a tweet. And he said it must get its act together quickly to stop the internal fighting and get back to greatness. Because, I mean, this is a huge internal fight. This investigation comes after a dispute between the group's president, Ollie North, and the chief executive officer, Wayne LaPierre. Right. And so this wasn't something that somebody politically started. This is internal. Hmm. Interesting. And Ollie North is accusing LaPierre of financial misconduct, right. including the improper use of 200000 of NRA funds to purchase clothing from an well, NRA. And, and Ollie North would know about that. He, he, he improperly used you know, government money to build a, uh, you know, a security system and a fence around his own house. Remember that? Back yeah, in the I, day? I thought about that when I read this story. Yes, yeah. he did. Yeah, amazing. Security system. Yeah, crooks calling out crooks. <laughs> yes, I just thought this was interesting because this is huge. When Oliver North splits from the NRA and he's, you know, he's the the head and he has this dispute, 
I'll bet when they put North in as the president, they thought, you know, this guy's as corrupt as the rest of us. We'll get along just fine. And 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 Ollie North, you know, got a conscience or something. It's totally weird. Anyhow, what else is up in the world? Well, of course, the the Barr story was very interesting because with Barr saying, well, he doesn't want to be grilled by attorneys, he is the highest attorney in the United States of America. And he doesn't want to be asked a question by another attorney. And yes, it may be deemed not the usual, but it's done many, many times Mm. in the process of a committee. And it's really no excuse to not go there. So I don't know where this heads, but, you know, we're watching closely to see. You know, where, in fact, this will end up. Yeah, well, Nadler's saying he's going to issue a subpoena. If he issues a subpoena, what, it goes to the Supreme Court and it drags out for a year and a half? Well, well, the problem with the subpoena is the subpoena and then goes through the District of Columbia. Then, Tom, a contempt, and contempt can take six years to solve. Six years, yeah. See, this, Trump's six just years. trying to run, run out of Harriet Myers. Yeah, this is... Harriet this is, Myers, six years. Yes, wow, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, Bob, thank you very much. Bob Nay with Talk Media News. Great thank talking you. with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. The National Education Association has a new report out. It came out this morning. It's titled Rankings of the States 2018 and Estimates of School Statistics 2019. And the president of the National Education Association, the NEA, 3 million members strong, NEA.org is their website. Lily Garcia is on the line with us. The NEA today is the Twitter handle or Lily underscore NEA. Lily uh, Garcia, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. This is an important report. I'm glad that you're sharing it. Thank you for sharing it with us, uh, you know, by being on the program with us. One of the top line points that you all make is that over the last decade, basically, average teacher pay in the country has decreased by four and a half percent. Explain how that has happened. And we look over the last 10 years, our report comes out every spring when my lungs fill up with cherry blossom pollen. I know it's time for the teachers' pay rankings. Mm -hmm. It it really is the most important report that comes out on teacher pay. The methodology we use is the gold standard. And what we're seeing now is the pay gap. This is really our competition when that young person wants to go to college and decide what they want to study. The pay gap between what a teacher makes and what virtually every other college-educated profession makes is growing. The gap is growing. Other professions, you want to be an accountant, you want to be in technology, um, you, your uh, professional pay is rising faster than inflation. That is not what's happening with teacher pay. And I will tell you as a woman, as a sixth grade teacher for 20 years, I believe that pay gap has a little something to do with the gender gap. I belong to a profession that is still about 77% women. And whenever you have a profession that's primarily women, you inevitably have a respect gap. People pat us on the head and say, oh, you're doing such fine work. But they do not expect that they will have to pay you the way other professions are paid. And so now all of this pay, and there's nothing more uncomfortable than talking about the pay raise, but what's happening is it is affecting our students. It's affecting who wants to be a teacher. 
And we are seeing a decline in the folks that are entering college saying, I really feel the calling to teach. I really think I could, you know, like knock the socks off the what I want to do to light kids' hair on fire and make them love learning. And then they look at the pay and they say, I'll never be able to pay off my student loan. And so people are being discouraged from becoming teachers, and we are seeing that shortage now, we've of seen, people applying all over the country. Oh, yeah, and, and I remember the 60s and 70s and 80s, I had friends who wanted to be teachers who went into teaching. They saw it as a job that had good pay, reasonable benefits, a lot of job satisfaction, job security the ability to retire with a pension. I mean, there were, there were a lot of positive benefits to it, and many of those have just been absolutely wiped out, as you point out. You um, know, and nobody ever expected to get rich being a public school no, teacher, you no. know. But we expected um, exactly what you just said. We expected to say, we'll, we'll be respected. We're doing important work. Yeah. People will want to support our work. Now, it's not just the pay. That's bad enough. But add to that the fact that virtually every teacher is expected to pull out of their own pockets to pay for things their students need. I always paid for my kids art supplies, science projects, uh, Mother's Day, you know, uh, uh, projects. No matter what it was, I had no budget for that. I and my colleagues would hold, um, well, we were in charge. The sixth grade was in charge of our weekly cavities for computer bake sale for the school library. These were things that we just did. We raided our own family's budgets to give to our students. Yeah. Uh, teaching is the only profession where you steal from home and take it to work. Um, and we, we really thought, you know, but it's that important. And we're not being given what we need. Uh, we have to take an extra job or two to make ends meet. But we love our work and we love our kids. Well, after a while, it gets so bad that you end up saying, if I keep picking up the slack for what a school district or a state legislature or a governor's budget did not give me, then that just gives them an excuse to keep on exploiting me and neglecting my students. So that's why you've been seeing this red-for-ed wave of people showing up at state capitals demanding the schools that their students deserve and the respect that our profession deserves. Yeah. Yeah, amen. And we've seen a number of teacher strikes, many of them very successful over the last year or so. It seems like a, you know, a, a growing thing, and yet that isn't even bringing teachers back to where they were 20, 30 years ago in terms of pay versus other professions and, and well, even just pay. But what Well, we've dug the hole pretty deep. When you look at it right now, 63% of American school districts have a teacher starting pay salary of less than $40,000. And 300 of them are less than $30,000. That means you're right out of college. You've got a student loan to pay off nine times out of 10. And you're going to be taking home $28,000, $32,000. And we have, that's one of the reasons parents 
are discouraging their sons and daughters from becoming teachers. They said you'll be living in the basement paying off your student loan, yeah. you know, until you're 37 years old. This is, uh, this so is just so we, we have a crisis on our hands. Yeah, we definitely do. Lily Garcia, uh, the president of the National Education Association, NEA.org is the website if you want to learn more about it or read the report. It is the uh, rankings of the state's 2018 and estimated school statistics of 2019 report from the NEA. Lily, thanks for dropping by. Oh, it's President a Garcia. Thank you. thank you very much. Great talking with you. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 at 110 or 6'4 at 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWheels and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair xchairtom.com You're listening to Tom Hartman So would you like to watch the Tom Hartman program all three hours of our program anytime you'd like patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Tom Hartman t-h-o-m-h-a-r-t-m-a-n-n all run together when you become a supporter of the program through Patreon you have access to the full three hour show anytime you want and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Harp. Thank you. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's on your mind today? Tom, I'd like to chip in a few words about a question you've been asking and We've been uh, beating around the bush and uh, for quite some time, and that is how to deal with the hardcore Trumpster. Right. And um, I come at you with weekly experience in the streets. I've practiced this for years, and it works really, really well. And to have the discussion, I want to just roughly break our country into three groups, which is a third Trumpsters, not pure, but basically right. a third us left Democrats and then a third of the people who are independents and pretty much people in the middle and people who are intelligent enough to be convinced or persuaded with an right. uh, I would call it low information factor. voters, right? Um, the low information voters would be the Trump. The independent, the oh. middle group is the group that actually are engaged in thoughtful conversations. Okay. Anyways, in the streets, I've learned the best way to deal with these hardcore Trumpsters. And in the end, it's basically to shun them and just to kind of let them speak in whatever might be and just move away, okay? Mm -hmm. So to me... The choice that we have as the progressive third of the country when we're trying to talk or we're trying to convince and move the country into a good 
electoral situation is that we should probably not waste our time talking to the hardcore Trumpsters because they are authoritarian personalities, basically. I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here. And they suffer from cognitive dissonance, which is really a mental condition that you can actually expand upon. But basically, you can't change their minds. And by just shunning the people and just saying, okay, I know who you are, and in your mind, you just say, okay, I recognize you as a Trumpster. I really don't want to engage this conversation, okay? And then just kind of back away and move away. And by doing that, you kind of leave them alone. This works perfectly, Tom. It works every single time. And so any energy spent by the top third, the progressive third, at trying to change people who suffer from authoritarian personalities and suffer from cognitive dissonance is really a waste of time. It's it's really spent better at uh, going elsewhere. Now... One of the ways that I deal with this, when I deal with a person in the street, when I recognize that, is I agree to disagree. I just simply say, isn't it great that we can have, and we live in a country that allows us to converse this way and, and disagree? And then I move on and I say, you know what, I bet, I bet, even though we have different perspectives, I bet that you will agree with me that we as a country can do better. Right. And then that's the end of the conversation. That is it. And and I can even give a symbolic or a metaphorical uh, kind of a humorous thing about Uncle Larry, okay, at a Thanksgiving table. There's a lot of encouragement to keep on engaging with this guy and work and work and families come apart and this, that, and the other thing. And what I would do is, again, you kind of just shun them. And the only political conversation that I would ever have at a Thanksgiving table with Uncle Larry is, if you notice that he's eating the green beans and the green beans happen to be organically grown, you can just talk to Uncle Larry and you can say, you like those green beans? Yeah, very much. Uh, did you know that they're organic? <laughs> so that's the end of the conversation. Yeah, so I get the, it. The I get it. Robin, okay. I get, we're out of time, but I get it. Thanks for sharing your experience with us. Linda in South Pasadena, California. Hey, Linda, what's on your mind today? We're so riled up by this uh, this monstrous personality that happens to be leading our country. And um, I just want to say that a while ago, somebody called in and said, well, people with issues and policy ideas ought to be more vocal and get more involved in local politics. And I just wanted to mention, I don't know if it's ever been mentioned on your show before, that here in Los Angeles, uh, somebody started what was called, and with permission of Bernie Sanders, Feel the Burn Democratic Club. And it filled out all the papers, and it's a, a legitimate Democratic Party. It has a right for, to send delegates and to participate in all the workings of the California Democratic Party. And since it began, now there are four different ones in Southern California, and I think a couple in Northern California. And I just wanted to let your listeners know that um, this is one way to have an influence from inside the party if you disagree with sort of the, the majority Sure. Uh, Position. Linda, are there other groups for other? I mean, is there an Elizabeth Warren group and a fill in the blanks? I mean, a Joe Biden group, or is is this something that uniquely Bernie has put together? Well, Bernie hasn't put it together. He, he, this is done by California people who have Bernie policy ideas, and they call oh. it. The, so it didn't come out of his campaign. This was entirely grassroots. No, this is something that came out of a local person group here, uh, just of activists that had nothing to do with Bernie, huh. uh, except that they except that they wanted it to be people who, with the general ideas that Bernie had, and uh, they wanted mm. to have an influence on the Democratic Party. Remarkable. And so they, 
And so now we have four in Southern California and one in Northern California, and it's beginning to, it's slowly growing. So I just wanted to mention that as one way to um, begin to influence the Democratic Party, which so many of us disagree with, and it's better to do it that way than just to say, oh, I'm just going to leave and I'm going to oh, yeah. never vote for it. If you don't like the way the party is being run, take it over. I mean, that's that's what the Koch brothers did with the Republican Party and right. what Donald Trump, you know, Robert Mercer, Shelley Adelson and Donald Trump did. Uh, you know, more and more recently. And we progressives need to be taking over the Democratic Party. That's brilliant, Linda. Thank you for sharing that with us. Sure. That's fantastic. Thank you. Carol in Seattle. Hey, Carol, what's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah, um, I've been listening to you since 2006, so thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, feeling very motivated. Uh, and I like your stuff about Rat Park and the Maslow's hierarchy, and I've been using that for the local Seattle issues here and studying all of the effects on how that that would help people. And, you know, mm-hmm. if we looked at those policies, those underlying deep root issues, because I work in functional medicine and, you know, prevention is the key. So if we want to go to the root of what keeps people from picking up the addiction or the gun or the whatever that we're experiencing now, you know, and mm-hmm. also civics and education, everything you've said so far, of course, do that too. <laughs> Thank you. Is that what you called about, Carol? Yeah, I mean, I just didn't want to take up too much time, but those are the deep underlying issues that I feel are driving everything from the opioid problem to the mental health crisis, and everything goes back to that. I I feel that if you have the things that you need, you don't feel disaffected, and then you can't be swayed to make it feel like someone else did it or these guys or they did it, you know? Right. Yeah. That I'm with type you. of thing. The, the yeah. Rat Park thing for people who don't know what we're talking about here, Carol, let me just riff on this real briefly. You know, all the studies that have been done on addiction and, and they were very, you know, well publicized back in the 80s with Reagan's just say no or Nancy Reagan's just say no thing. And this is your brain on drugs and all this were, you know, they, they had rats and they gave them their choice of water or cocaine or water or heroin and they would take the cocaine or the heroin instead of the water until they died. And so the psychologist, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, the psychologist said, maybe what we're seeing here is not a response to addiction, not an addiction response that has to do with the availability of drugs, but rather the fact that these rats are essentially in solitary confinement. They're locked into one square foot or one cubic foot cages for their entire lives. And, you know, they have no social, I mean, rats are just like us. They've got limbic brains. They, they, I don't mean literally just like us, but, but at the level, you know, all mammals have this limbic brain. We all feel the same emotions essentially in the same way, whether we're rats or whether we're cows or whether we're dogs or whether we're cats or whether we're humans, we have that emotional range from literally shame and guilt to love and, and anticipation and all these other things. And, and his, his thought was, could it be that the rats are turning to drugs because their lives are crappy? Their lives are just terrible because they're locked in these solitary confinement cages. And so he created this thing he called the rat park. And it was, you know, 20 square feet or whatever it was. And it had places where the rats could hide and places where they could play and places where they could mate and places where they could create nests. And they could, you know, essentially replicated the, 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 out, the external world, the outdoor world. And then those rats he exposed to, he gave them their choice of water that was just water, water with cocaine or water with heroin. And universally, they turned down the heroin and cocaine and they just wanted the water because life was good. And this gives a whole new look at addiction and why we have addiction and why addiction is ravaging those parts of the United States where the economy is absolutely falling apart, social cohesion is falling apart, industry moves to China and things like that. 
But I think you could take out drug addiction and substitute right-wingism or anti-Semitism or, uh, you know, racial hatred or, I mean, fill in the blank, any of these just kind of, you know, dirty, awful emotions that people are injecting into their psychic bloodstreams constantly. And I think that the dynamic is identical. I think, you know, as, you know, if we had a society where people are actually taken care of, where education is available, where healthcare is not something you have to, you know, 600,000 people a year are not declaring bankruptcy because of healthcare, where, where people are not graduating with college debt that prevents them from actually having a life. If we were to become the, the kind of society the democratic socialist society like Denmark or, you know, where, where, yeah, they have drug addicts, but it's not the kind of thing that we're seeing here. I mean, you know, the, the, the uh, opioid crisis that uh, the United States is having is literally not being replicated in the rest of the world. And I think that it's as much a reflection of social crises as it is the availability of drugs. And I don't think the Sackler family is entirely responsible for it. They just gave people, you know, access to something that was a, a palliative for the psychic pain that they're experiencing. So, Carol, spot on and keep doing what you're doing. And thank you for the you call, too. Carol. Okay. <laughs> thank Thanks you. a lot. It's I great to hear from you. Thank you. Alina in Seattle. Hey, Alina, what's up? Hi, Tom. I have a childish idea about what we do after Trump leaves office. Uh, Great. Maybe to uh, make people laugh. Uh, I, I think that if we get a Democratic president, that person should mandate that everybody take a month-long vacation paid for by the government. Yeah. So we can get back to our senses, and then we can protest whatever the new administration is doing with being yeah. arrested. Yeah, or maybe January 5th should be, uh, you know, of, of 2021, the day that the new president gets sworn in, should be a national holiday. And we should have celebrations all over the country and, and you know, free beer or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then a free vacation for there, a month. There you go. There you go. Elena, thank you. That's a great one. I love it. Rob in Houston, Texas. Hey, Rob, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, you know, I've been thinking about this situation of what to do after Trump leaves, and I'm beginning to think it's a little premature to talk about that. I do think, though, that we need to identify the areas where he has done damage that can be repaired, and the areas where he's done damage that can't be repaired using the, uh, the conventional tools that we have, how to repair that damage, Rob? Reinstating environmental laws that he's gotten rid of, I agree with that. The problem I see is that as he sits there with between Putin pushing and destabilizing all our alliances and the corporate Republicans, you know, pushing from the other side, yeah. that we've got a big uphill battle here. Yeah, in other words, it's not just Trump. Rob, you're absolutely right. And, and that's a, a large and important point. Rob, I'm sorry we're out of time, but thank you for the call. Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Um, looking forward to the week as it plays out. Thursday in particular is going to get interesting with this battle between Jerry Nadler and Bill Barr. So anyhow, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 